so often when confronted with evil, our minds try to do something. Whenever we're confronted with an evil, our minds try to find the reason someone would do something. Our minds start to search, we start to wonder, and we try to figure out what could someone possibly be thinking? What could they have been thinking to do these evil things to someone who is innocent? And if you keep searching and keep searching, you'll go crazy because it's not reasonable. Those actions are just not reasonable. They're not based on good, solid, right reasoning. And so often, I think, in our world today, we don't confront the problem. And the problems are very obvious today, I think. And it was even Bishop Fulton Sheen, now Venerable Fulton Sheen, who more than 50 years ago did a wonderful broadcast on what he thinks is causing a lot of the problems that we're seeing even back then. It's wonderful. I mean, everything he did was so wonderful. I always loved listening to him. He had that way about him and that, that you could see the preparedness in his statements. And he talked about the fact that more and more people are no longer using the gift of reason, the gift of right reason. And he says, you can see it all around society. It's something that's becoming more and more pervasive. And the more we don't use the gift of reason, the more you begin to see cultures start to collapse. And I have to say, he was onto something there. And he gives a lot of good examples, but suffice it to say that his point is always taken well. See, during the summer, I decided that I was going to do a series on faith, because I think faith is so important, faith enough that we could move mountains, that we could change everything. But we have to remember, too, that faith without reason is baseless. In fact, the best quote that I ever heard was, faith without reason leads to superstition. Reason without faith leads to nihilism and rationalism. Faith without reason leads to superstition. And I think we've all met that person that is just, they come across so, like everything, it, it, super, they just wonder, they, oh, but yet those who do have faith and reason tend to be solidly grounded, good, wholesome people. And so his point is very clear. Without good, solid, right reason, one of the things that begins to take its place is emotivism, overemphasis on the emotional, on the passions, and encouraging the passions, and encouraging people to follow their whims and their, and, and their ways. When you think about it, he's describing this modern era very, very well. People just follow their passions. People don't really think things through. People don't spend the time and reasonably ask themselves, what am I about to do? How is this going to end? Where is this going to lead me? And he did, it, he did it comparing it to a tube of toothpaste. Only Fulton Sheen could get away with turning it into a tube of toothpaste. Don't ask me how his brain came up with this. But he said, tube of toothpaste, when given pressure with the cap off, the toothpaste comes out where you want it, and you put it where you need it. He said, but if you put that cap back on and squeeze the tube still, it's going to come out someplace and it's not going to come out where you want it. Now take an unreasonable person, and he links reason to the lack of shame. He says, a reasonable person can recognize evils, can recognize wrongs 
and feel that remorse for what they've done. But in, in time when people aren't using reason, when they're being encouraged that everything is okay, they go off and they do all of these things, and yet something is still clicking within them that they haven't reached yet through right reason. And so what begins to happen, he actually says, people start to develop a form of psychoses or neuroses over it. And what's going to start to happen? It'll come out somewhere. And I'm sure you've known people in your life that are like that. The people in the book of Exodus were highly unreasonable. Did, did you hear? I mean, here are these people. They just had all these great miracles of God. They were delivered from slavery by mighty acts of God. And what's the first thing they do? They turn their back on God and give themselves their own God. I mean, the first commandment. Come on, folks. This wasn't like rocket science. Well, they didn't have rocket science back then, but you know what I mean. What did they do? They, they turned to another God. And it was the reasonableness of Moses that kept them from getting the wrath of God brought down on them. Think this through. Think, we, folks, we've got to be, we have to use this gift of reason. And I think Archbishop Sheen was right on target. There's a lot of people who have reasons for what they do. I love, I love, I love you folks. You're so wonderful. But sometimes you try to justify what you did by giving all the reasons. You know, I told this lie for this reason, and this reason, and this reason, and this reason. It still didn't change the lie. It still didn't change the sin that was committed. You can have all the, the reasons in the world, but were they right reasons? Were they truly a reasonable act? And that, my dear brothers and sisters, is something that I think we're going to have to grapple with. In these next few weeks, are a perfect time. After spending that time on faith, I want to spend a little bit more time on what we mean by right reason. Because it's so important that we start to once again engage the process. I love Luke's gospel. Luke's gospel is different than the other gospels. It's got its own character. And Luke had this Jesus that just starts on a journey. And everywhere he's going, he's telling these different things. He's doing these miracles. He's having these confrontations. He's running into these people. He's doing these different things. And then all of a sudden, something changed last week, if, if you recall. Now he gave the conditions for discipleship. And what he said, I'm sure all of the people hanging around him going, that's unreasonable, Lord. I'm not going to take up a cross. A cross is for criminals. I'm not going to throw out my family. What are you talking about, Lord? I'm not going to do that. That, that's, that doesn't make any sense. But Jesus said those words. And he said it out of right reason. Now what's going to happen is we're going to turn to that section of Luke's gospel where he's going to give us parables. And Luke's got a lot of these lovely, beautiful parables. And the one we hear today, the three we heard today, but the one we heard today of the prodigal son, we all love it, don't we? It's always one of our favorites. You know, people get so excited over the prodigal son. They, they love it when this parable comes up. And it's the longest sustained parable in all of the Gospels. Rich in its imagery. Rich in so many things. But Jesus is doing something very interesting here. Jesus is not in the process of teaching his disciples. That's not what he's doing. Sometimes we think the parables are him being a teacher. He's not. He's forming his disciples. He's trying to change them from within. He's trying to help them to go through the process of understanding by looking deeper within themselves. 
And so all the parables, that's their purpose. There's a teachable moment there, but he's forming them. Like the way people are formed today. You know, down through the ages, prevalent, prevalent philosophies always influenced culture. Go back to the Greeks, go back to the Romans, even come to modern times, whatever the dominant philosophies are of the time will eventually have impact in the culture, in the church, in every place and everywhere we go. Now, stick with this for a second, because I know none of you have degrees in philosophy. I've done a lot of study of philosophy. Um, I spent a lot of time when I was doing my dissertation on St. John Paul II, the philosophies that, that formed his thought, the philosophies that form our culture. More than 100 years ago, more than 100 years ago, a school of philosophy started to develop around what's called secular humanism. And at the basis of their philosophy was what they wanted to have as emotivism, that emotions are important, and they are. The church has always said that. But one of the things one of my spiritual directors said to me that was so spot on target that I've, I repeated over and over again, emotions don't make decisions. Think about it. How many people base an, a decision on a passion or an emotion? The first son, the younger son. He just, all of a sudden, he, 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 his, his passion, I'm just going to go off and live my life. I'm, I'm, this world, there's nothing about it. I'm, I, I'm just going to go off and do what I want to do. And he went. And he lived his pleasures and his fun and his games. But it wasn't a very good reason, good reasoned thought. You don't let your emotions, your passions, they can't make the decisions for you. There can be factors in a decision-making process, but a reasonable person has to use right reason to understand what is the goal, what are you trying to attain, how do you get there, these are now the things you need to do. You do it in your own life all the time, I'm sure. That's a reasonable person. But when these schools of philosophy started to come up, Schools of philosophy influence universities, influence educational systems, influence cultures. And so keep in mind that now we are living in a different kind of a culture. Centuries ago, philosophies for the most part were to the upper class. They were the ones who would have been exposed to it. Most people, they were living in poverty and peasantry. And if something got to them, it wasn't that prevalent. But look at what we have today. Do you know what the most powerful force we have in culture today, in any age? Art. Look at all the great works of art down through the ages. They were influencers. Look at all the great music. I, I have this conversation with Deanna all the time. She has more power over influencing what you think about Christ than my homilies ever will. Because she's going to play a song, and you're going to sing that in the car ride home, but you're not going to remember most of what I said. So I always tell her, she's got way more power than I do. Art. Look at how art affects people. And look at the music. See, like, ages ago, nobody really had a lot of music. They, they, didn't, they couldn't listen to music, because if you didn't have money to go to listen to the, to the concert, you couldn't go. The place where most people had their music was in church. And that art, that art form forms people the way parables do. It forms people because you can repeat it over and over again. And the power of art. I remember one year I was in a hotel in Europe and I'm turning on the TV and like the handful of TV stations in English were so minimal 
And I realized our chief cultural export from the United States was MTV. And I mean, I watched a couple of these videos. I couldn't take it anymore. It was just what it was portraying. But it made me ask, but if someone has a steady diet of this, how is their life going to be? And what ends up happening with time is when we're told, don't think about it, don't deal with it, just do it, we start to do it. But that's like putting the cap back on the toothpaste tube and letting the pressure build up. Because deep down inside each and every one of us is a spark somewhere that does appreciate good and evil, right and wrong. There's a spark way down in there that should be driving us to the good, the true, and the beautiful. And when we don't achieve it, when it doesn't happen, it starts to build up. And if we don't get that chance to let it go, it's going to explode. And so many people I meet today, maybe not dysfunctional, they can still function in society, but they're like walking zombies sometimes. They don't know where to go, they don't know what to do. I've had countless, countless, countless numbers of women come to me to ask for some advice. And I sit and I talk with them for a little while. And they hear all the signs, they hear all the different phrases that they use. And at some point, sometimes, they seem so deep down that I just come right out and I point blank ask, so when did you have the abortion? That's none of your business, Father. Maybe it's not, but when did you have it? Because they knew from the moment that it happened, something was wrong. And they weren't allowed to grapple with it. You know what the only institution in the entire world that helps women who have had an abortion recover? The Catholic Church. Why? Because we know even they were victims. In every sin, in every unreasonable act a person does, there is both a victim and a perpetrator. And in that case, they were both. And dear brothers and sisters, we have to own up. I was like the younger son in the parable. I mean, read the parable. What I'd like you to do this week, take that parable and read it 10 times a day. Just keep reading it. And you're going to see every time you go through it, there's something else that's interesting about it. You'll identify with something else in it. You'll see yourself in a different way. And maybe you'll recognize, you know, when I, was, when I was younger, I was very impulsive like the younger son. And I can tell you right now, there's no way my father would have given me my inheritance if I went in and demanded it at 20. Dad, I'm done. I'm out of here. Give me everything that you're supposed to give me. It never happened. Or I could have been like the older son at times where I get so self-righteous that he has to be punished. He has to be brought down. What he did to you deserves because I'm such a good guy. He wasn't a good guy either. They were both very unreasonable. And that's why we needed to have the father to explain to both of them. This is right reasoning, my son. Love. Care. My son was gone. He's back. We've all had those stories, haven't we? You've had someone in your life that suddenly came to the light, saw the error of their ways, and worked to fix it. And the, the, the younger son got much more reasonable. Listen, you know what? It might not even be the best reason, but you know what? My father's at least got food that I could be eating. Let me just go back and grovel at his feet. We've all heard stories. We've probably even known people like that. But how many parents I've known whose heart breaks when they do have a child 
that follows their passions, that follows their whims, that goes off and does all these dissolute things. And I watch a parent's heart broken, but very much like the father in the story, that broken heart is only just saying, please come back to me. Just please come back. And when they do, it's a joyful moment, not an angry moment. I think a reasonable, a right reasoned person doesn't have to rely on anger to fix the problems. But a person who lives in wrong reason always wants to rely on anger to fix problems. And so my dear brothers and sisters, for the next few weeks, there's a lot I wanna say about all of this because this is near and dear to my heart. We live in a culture where it seems like it's reason without faith. The secular humanists did not want faith. They openly state that faithful people are ignorant and stupid and we have to fix everything that they did wrong. And they're still trying. And they're still out there. And they're still forming us through music. They're still forming us through television. They're still forming us through media, social media. Look at what is steady in your diet of every day. Because when I was in, when I was in college, I came up with my own little axiom. We become a function of our environment. What I surround myself with all day will impact me. The music I listen to all day will eventually start to form my thoughts. So start to look at what's in your life. And for this week, I want to close on silence. Silence. So many people I know today have zero silence in their life. Get in the car and turn on the radio. Go into the house, turn on a TV. You name it, no matter where they are, there's noise in the background. And I have found in my own life, without silence, I never get to that reasonable process to see where I need to grow and change. But with that silence, suddenly I can discover and understand and grow. And so your two tasks this week, we read the gospel every day, spend time with it, and try to get more silence in your life. Turn off the noisemakers and the distraction makers. Next week, we're going to get a really good parable as well, and I'll spend a little more time looking at the reasonableness of what Jesus is offering us. The week after that, that's the one I don't want to really talk about because that's my least favorite one, Devis and Lazarus. And then the final week is going to flash back to this week where he's going to have servants come in who only did what they were supposed to do, like the brother. And we'll tie that all together for you. But between now and then, start to ask yourselves, what is it that I am supposed to be doing? Who is it that I am supposed to be? And how am I going to reasonably achieve that? For I want everyone to look at me someday and say, you know what, that's reasonable. And I hope they can look at you and say, what you just said, that's reasonable. God bless you.